song, that um, all we have is yours. You are all that we need, that you're sufficient. Reminded from 2 Corinthians 5 that you died um, once for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. And, and that's what we yearn for, Lord. We yearn to be a people who live for you, um, who make our boast in you and in you alone, not in ourselves. Um, Lord, deeply reminded this morning and just aware of the fact that, that, that I have nothing inside of me that's worth following. Um, weak, broken, uh, wrought with sin, prone to wonder. Um, but Lord, even in the midst of that, you magnify your grace um, by choosing to use the preaching of your words. I pray that you would, Lord, um, as we turn now to opening up your scripture, that your word would speak. We know it's powerful. We know that it's profitable to equip us for every good work and make us complete in you. We pray that that would be the case as we turn uh, to your word in the book of Acts this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. Good to see y'all this morning. Let me get situated a little bit. One of my greatest fears every day is to knock over this microphone behind me. I got a feeling it's going to happen one day. Um, hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We are finally out of the second chapter of Acts. Aren't you excited? Acts chapter 3. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit this morning. We're actually going to be looking at the entire chapter of chapter 3. Okay, so Acts chapter 3. As you turn there, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to think about something in your life, whether that is a possession you have or a memory or part of your family. Think about something that you would deem invaluable. What is something that you have that you would deem invaluable, okay? So to make sure that you're not confused by what that word means, because it's a pretty confusing word, right? Invaluable. Usually when you use the word, the prefix in, it negates something. Like when someone isn't, uh, when someone's inarticulate, right? They're not articulate. Or when someone's insane, you would say they are not sane. But when we say something is invaluable, it doesn't mean that it's not invaluable, not valuable, it means the opposite. It means that it's, it's beyond value, that it's actually priceless, okay? So think about what is something in your life that you would say is priceless, that is invaluable? And that's a, that's a confusing word. And uh, I wonder how many of you are actually thinking of things right now that are, that are valuable, not invaluable, okay? Because there's a difference. Let me illustrate this. Uh, when Annie and I first moved to the mission field in North Africa in 2013, our team leaders... Um, were from Colorado, and, and I'm not familiar with Colorado, some of you may be, but they were from a particular part of the state that um, is prone to wildfires, and from what I understand is those wildfires, they can come on you in a hurry, like just one turn of the wind can really begin to move in there, and um, it, it happened to them. Uh, they heard that the wildfire was moving, that they had to evacuate, he left work, rushed home, jumped into the truck, and met his wife at the door, and his wife said, hey, grab the invaluables. Now, all of you wives in the room, right, you know in that moment, that was a bad decision because my wife sends me to the grocery store with a list of things. I come back with 10 things that weren't on the list and nothing that was on the list, mostly because I'm just wandering around aimlessly, you know, like, where are these things? And I don't have the, the humility to ask for help. But that's what happens. And that's inevitably what happened in this, this family as that wildfire was coming in. He ran into the house and he grabbed one particular item. This is a true story. His Husqvarna chainsaw. He grabbed one item, his chainsaw, you know, and I'm sure it was a nice chainsaw. Husqvarna is a great brand. Is it invaluable, you know, left to, to be determined? No, and she let him have it. I mean, this was, we, we joined their team probably 14 years after this story, and uh, she still brings it up. In fact, she created a box of invaluables so that if it happens again, he can evacuate a little bit better. But, you know, like family photo albums or, or jewelry that your family has left you, like heirlooms, right? We're thinking invaluables, not valuable. So 
Here's where we go in Acts chapter 3 today. We're going to be seeing this concept of invaluable or valuable, and I just want to ask, what is Jesus to you? Like when you think about Jesus in your personal life, is he valuable or is he invaluable? Because the point I want us to see in Acts chapter 3 is that ultimately the only thing that is truly invaluable is faith in the name of Jesus, okay? So let's begin Acts chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to break up the entire chapter into three different sections. Let's start in verse 1, 2 through 10. And i got to remember I have my clicker again today. All right. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by his right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. <clears throat> Excuse me. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Valuable or invaluable. Okay, that's what we're looking for here. So, that, so a little bit of context. If you remember Acts chapter 2, we concluded that last week. And one of the things that the early church valued, that they found valuable, was the corporate gathering of the church. That they were daily going into the temple, corporately, to gather together. And that's exactly how Acts chapter 3 opens up. Peter and John are going into the temple at the formal hours of prayer. And as they're going up, what do they notice at the entrance of the gate to the temple? This man that's being carried, and he's deformed, and he has this disability. He's being laid at the entrance of the gate. But what's interesting to me, and we think about this concept of valuable, is where was he laid? Where did they put him? What was the name of the gate? Beautiful, a beautiful gate. I mean, could you imagine how valuable this gate must have been? Now, we're not, we're not confident today exactly which gate that is, but from third century on, most people thought it was the eastern gate into the temple. It's another word for it is the Sushan gate, meaning that these doors, Josephus, a first century historian, talked about the eastern gate was 75 feet tall. Double, double doors, and they were uh, surrounded in Corinthian brass. Josephus wrote, the beautiful gate greatly excelled all of the other gates that were only covered in silver and gold. You can imagine walking up to the temple, which is a huge structure, and you're walking through this gate just awestruck by the beauty and the enormity of this gate. But here, sitting outside this gate is this man every day calling for alms. That's a pretty strategic location for this guy. I mean, again, thousands of people are going up at the hour of prayer. And here he is seated there, and he's calling for alms. And, and in most religions, especially in Judaism, you have this concept of charity or piety in the giving to the poor. That's a pretty strategic location for this guy. But what would have happened in that moment is all these thousands of worshipers going into the temple, they're not going to notice him. Because why? This, this valuable gate is going to have all their attention as they're moving into the temple. But look what Peter and John did. They, they noticed him. Verse 4. Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and said, look at us. And the beggar fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Look at us. How many thousands of people probably went into the temple every day, walking right past this man, only seeing the valuable gate and missing looking at him? But Peter and John didn't. Y'all, this is not the point of the sermon, but I just want to say, don't, don't overlook or underestimate the value of actually seeing people. 
like actually looking at people. It, it, it conveys value. It conveys love. It's actually seeing people as children of God, made in his image, instead of viewing him as just some pariah on society, always out there asking for alms. Glad that our kids are here this morning. Y'all with me? Yeah. Over here. Y'all doing okay? Let's check on y'all. Okay. Um, y'all, we have a story like this. Um, it, it's really real to our family. I, I said that we were in North Africa from 2013 to 2015, and outside the apartment that we lived in um, was a lady, m- much like this man in this passage today, always out there begging. She had, had a, disfor- a, a deformity, disabled, and every day my wife would, would see her like really see her, walk up to her. And if you know Annie, you know this is in line with who she is. She's so gentle. She would take her some bread and she would sit down with her and they would, in this broken Arabic, talk. And Annie would talk about how God loves her, her name, getting to know her family, and they would communicate this value. And this lady would start kissing Annie's hands as this sign of just, just beauty, just kissing Annie's hands. Well, Annie would respond by kissing her hands. And she would rip her hands away and say, you can't do that, I'm too ugly. I'm too dirty, you can't do that. After six months, probably five days a week, this is a true story, after six months, Annie had built such a rapport with her, she asked her, Aisha, I'd like to get a picture with you. And the lady passionately opposed, no, you cannot have my picture. I'm not worthy. I'm too ugly. I'm too dirty. You can't have this picture. Y'all, for 18 months, Annie would meet with Aisha, kissing hands, expanding on this, this broken Arabic, practicing, conveying this value. After 18 months, unprompted, Aisha said, Annie, would you like to get a picture with me? I believe that I'm beautiful now. It's an amazing, powerful story of what it looks like to actually see people. So not the point of our passage today, but you can bestow a lot of value on people if we can slow down, get our, get our eyes off our iPhones for just a second, and actually see people. It conveys a lot of value. So they do. Peter and John, they look at this man, and uh, this, is, this is verse 6. This man looks back at them, sets his gaze on him, thinking that he's going to receive something. Peter and John say, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. This man, he just wanted something valuable, right? Just just a couple pieces of, of pennies so he could buy some food for his day. He was looking for something valuable. Instead, he walks out of there, literally walks out of there, right, with something that is invaluable. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. For the first time in his life, he's walking, leaping jumping with joy into the temple. Did you hear that? Where does he begin to walk and leap and to jump? Into the temple. Y'all, this is incredibly significant because the Levitical law in Leviticus chapter 21 says, no one who has a blemish shall draw near the temple of God. A man blind or lame, a man who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand cannot enter into the temple. Sorry, guys. Yeah, well, I may need your help, Matt. There we go. Made it. Y'all, this is so significant. A man with a blemish, a man with a deformity could not enter into the temple. He was unclean, unfit to come into the presence of God. But in the name of Jesus, what he receives when it is invaluable immediately begins to go into the presence of God, into the temple. That's significant. His first moment walking, he's finally accepted, finally moves into that point. Y'all, and this is a scene Could you imagine being there? Like thousands of people, you know, kind of getting distracted. They're trying to buy their sacrifice. They see this guy doing back handsprings. They're trying to figure out what is going on. And you notice that's the guy that's been begging every day. That's the guy that that was pretending, right, to have a deformity. I know that's what you're thinking. Some of you are cynics. I'm a cynic. I'm suspicious. If I start seeing that, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, he duped me. 
I was, I was in awe, you know, of this beautiful gate. And instead uh, I, of not giving him, I ended up giving him some money. He duped me. He's a fraud. He wasn't really deformed. But you couldn't have said that back then. Because in Acts chapter 4, verse 22, it says, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. For a long time, this guy had been there day by day, deformed, asking for money. He wasn't a fraud. He'd been there for 40 years. He came for something valuable every day. On this particular moment, he left with something that is invaluable. So the crowd, they're, they're filled with wonder. They're filled with amazement. And Peter, just in like fashion, just like on the day of Pentecost, he never misses a moment to begin to witness. As the crowds begin to draw, Peter begins to preach. And let's pick back up in verse 11. And he clung to Peter and John. And all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by your own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And hear this summary statement in verse 16. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. It's invaluable. The invaluable name of Jesus. That's what I want us to see, the invaluable name of Jesus. Peter begins his sermon by shoring up any confusion that they may have. If you see this happen, if you saw someone who was deformed for 40 years begin to walk, you're probably going to think, what do those guys have that I don't, right? And Peter's going, I, you can't look at me. It's not my name. It's not my power. It's not my piety that has made this man walk. It's the invaluable name of Jesus. And you all know this, but, it, but a name is more than a label, right? It's, it's more than a title. It actually has um, a whole person's being and personality attached to it. So when Peter invokes the name of Jesus, he's invoking the power and the authority of his entire person. You with me? It was his entire person. It's not just a title. It's invoking the power and the authority of his person. So who is this person? That's the point of Peter's sermon. It's to say it's not just some mystical feature of just claiming the name of Jesus. Like when we pray and we say, well, in Jesus' name we pray. It's not some magic tagline, right? We're saying, no, we're coming to you in your full authority and in your full power and the power of your person. That's what we're doing. So what is in this name? What is in this person of Jesus that makes it so invaluable? Peter gives us three descriptors. Okay, and I'm going to walk through these pretty quickly. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. The first thing I want us to see is that the descriptor of Jesus, what's in the invaluable name was that he is the servant, okay? He's the servant. Jesus was not just a servant. He was the servant. Peter says that God had glorified him. This is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah was talking about this suffering servant that would come, that would be the Messiah. Isaiah 52, 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. God's servant would be glorified would be exalted. Peter is saying that this man, Jesus, he is the servant. But you, you delivered him over, and you rejected him. But don't worry, that was prophesied too. Isaiah 53, 3. This servant would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was the servant. 
So what's in this invaluable name of Jesus is that he was the servant. Okay, point number one. The second is holy and righteous one. Holy and, and righteous one. Let's look back together in our passage together today. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, the holy and righteous one. These are both messianic descriptors. When you hear the holy one, when you hear the righteous one, you should think of Christ, the prophesied savior. Demons and men throughout the gospels would both recognize that this Jesus was the holy one and the righteous one. In Mark chapter 1, when demons came to Jesus, were confronted by Jesus, they said, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? They said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he says, we have believed and have come to know in John chapter 6 that you are the Holy One of God. This is a title of the Messiah. What's in the invaluable name of Jesus is that he is the Messiah, the Holy and the Righteous One. But Peter, again, drives home the point, but you didn't recognize how invaluable he was. Instead of recognizing him as the holy and righteous one, you denied him and you asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be released to you instead of this Jesus. And then finally, this this last descriptor he used, verse 15, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. You killed the author of life. It's the originator, the source of all life. He's saying you killed him. That's a bit of an oxymoron, right? Like how do you kill the source of all life? Well, it goes back to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He said, you killed him, but it was impossible for death to be held by him, so God raised him from the dead. He's the author of life. It's impossible for him to remain dead. Verse 15, and God raised him. To this we are witnesses. Y'all, this name of Jesus, he's invaluable. It's an invaluable name. He is the suffering servant. He's the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life. So the name of Jesus, it's invaluable. And the truth of the matter is, whether you put your faith in that name or not, it's invaluable. It doesn't change. Whether we believe it, whether we follow it, the name of Jesus is invaluable. But let's look back at verse 16. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. His name is invaluable. But y'all, it's invaluable for us to put our faith in the name of Jesus. Okay? Are you with me? Like, whether you do or not, It's invaluable. His name is invaluable. It's unchanging. But for us to experience the invaluability, I think that's a word, of the name of Jesus, we have to put our faith in that name. Y'all, gold and silver, it it comes and goes. The beautiful gate that that this man was sitting outside, as astonishing and as big as it was, it, it came to decay. It crumbled down when it was sacked. Physical healing, even as this man experienced in Acts chapter 3, as amazing as that is, all physical healing will eventually fade as we age and die. It's inevitable. Those things are just valuable. But faith, faith in the name of Jesus, it's invaluable. So let's read our final portion. I want to show us why faith in the name of Jesus is invaluable. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your fathers or your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness, to bless you. Putting our faith, putting your faith in the invaluable name of Jesus, y'all, it will bless you. And there are three things here, three things, three blessings of the invaluable name of Jesus that he shares. But before I jump in there, let's, let's go real quick back to verse 17. I love that Peter, he's a little bit softer here. If you remember his, his sermon from the day of Pentecost, he didn't hold any punches, like came out swinging, saying things like, you crucified him, you killed the author of life. He was really laying on the condemnation to the Jews. But here he's a little bit softer. He says, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. Like, I know you didn't know what you were doing, and and we know that to be true, right? Because Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they did. But I I love this. I wanted to point our attention to it real quick. Although the people acted in ignorance of killing Jesus, God wasn't ignorant. God was totally aware of what was happening. Verse 18, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Although we may be ignorant of things, God never is. He had foretold it. Jesus had fulfilled it. He is invaluable. But he says, if you put your faith in him, you're going to be blessed. There's some blessings that come from it. What are those? Let's look at three. The first is uh, verse 19. He removes our sin. I'm going to read it one more time. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That word blot means removed, cleansed, totally clean, forgiven before God. You are cleansed. Y'all, our sins, they defile us. They, they make us dirty. David alludes to this in his repentance of adultery in Psalm 51. He says, purge me with hyssop. He's saying, this sin has, has made me dirty. Purge me, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And the Bible is clear. Not just David, but you and I, we're all sinners. We've all been born with this stain, with this dirt on us. And who can ascend to the hill of the Almighty? Only those with what? Clean hands and a pure heart. Only the clean can come into the presence of God. Your sin, just like the man that we saw in Acts 3, keeps you from entering into the presence of God. You've got to stand outside the gate. You cannot approach his presence because your sin has made you dirty. Just as he had a physical deformity, so you have a spiritual one. Your sins make you too dirty, too unclean to come into his presence. And you all, no matter how hard you work or how hard you try, you can't clean yourself up. The stain's too deep. It's too great. Your stain is is like a permanent marker or a Sharpie that's on a kitchen floor that may or may not be in my house currently because one of our kids thinks they're an artist, okay? It's a stain on our floor, and and I've tried everything. It doesn't matter how hard I scrub, what kind of cleaner that I use. It can be that $9 bottle of homemade essential oil formula, whatever that is. We tried it. We scrubbed. It won't come out. And I don't receive any kickbacks for this, but I do want to endorse one particular product because I found it, Okay? The magic eraser. Have y'all ever used the magic eraser? I don't know what witchcraft this is, but y'all, it works. All you got to do is damp it a little bit, scrub it a little bit, and it's gone. It worked. But just like that, that, that permanent marker, y'all, in our kitchen, our sin, is, it's just too deep. It's too stained, but in his own love, his own grace, and his own mercy, he's given you the invaluable name of Jesus. And if you put your faith, just like that magic eraser, if you put your faith in the invaluable name of Jesus, your sins will be washed away will be removed from you. It'll be blotted out. That's the first blessing that we find in Peter's passage. Now, again, I'm not preaching all the blessings that are found in Christ. 
Just the ones that Peter highlights for us. Verse 19, the first one is remove. He removes our sins. But the second thing he does is he gives us times of refreshing. Look again at verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. That times of refreshing. Y'all, I could geek out about this for a couple hours. I'm not, I'm not going to because we have some other things to get to today. But the word times in the Greek New Testament is so interesting. There's two Greek words for the concept of time. The first is found in this verse, verse 20, that times of refreshing. is the Greek word kairos. It means moments or opportunities or seasons. It is not a fixed date on your calendar. It's not some linear point of time. It's an ongoing, repetitive moment of refreshing, and that's what Jesus is, it, it provides. When he refreshes you, it's ongoing. It's not just at conversion. It's not just when you put your faith, but as you walk by faith in the name of Jesus, you receive these moments of refreshing. I mean, how good does that sound? Like, how many of you could use just some refreshing from the presence of God this morning? What does that look like? What does it actually mean then? How do I know? Like, how do I know I'm being refreshed by Jesus? I, I honestly think the applications to that question are endless because he is so endless. Like, he's so vast. His, his love for you is so deep and wide and long. It's just hard to search that out. So I think the applications are endless. But I do know from Scripture and from my life, there are three I want to share with you. Three ways that he will bless you by refreshing you with his presence. The first is he refreshes us physically. Y'all, he can refresh you physically. Anybody read the story of Elijah on the showdown with Mount Carmel? Right? If, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with the story, you have Elijah who wants to prove that his God, Yahweh, is the real God, and that Baal, this pagan God, is not the real God. So he has this cage match on top of this mountain where he builds an altar to the Lord, and the prophets of Baal build an altar to their God, and they say, whoever sends fire down to consume those altars, that's the real God. It's an amazing scene. And what happens in that story is that the Yahweh pours fire down on that altar, and nothing happens to the altar of the prophets of Baal. And you would think that in that moment, what would happen is nationalistic revival, right? If you saw something like that, you would think it would turn into revival, that, that, that Elijah would start walking with his chest puffed out a little bit more, right? He just had this massive showdown. But what happens in the very next chapter is he is running for his life because some crazy lady Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And instead of standing in the faith of what he just experienced, he runs, runs into the wilderness. And we find Elijah in the wilderness, exhausted, battling despair, and actually battling suicidal thoughts. And how does God refresh him in that moment? He says, Elijah, lay down and go to sleep. You need to sleep. And when he woke up, he had some food prepared for him, and he ate. And after he ate, he said, go back to sleep. You need to sleep some more. Slept some more. When he woke up, he gave him some more food, and he ate. He provided his physical needs. He refreshed him physically. Y'all, some of you are worn out, exhausted physically, not eating well, not sleeping well, constantly driven by stress and anxiety, maybe overworking because you're finding your value in what you can do and your performance instead of, lose, uh, instead of putting your eyes on he who is invaluable. So you're grinding away, you're performing, you're running that rat race, and y'all, it's never ending. It's like drinking salt water. You think it's going to help, but it's just going to wear you out. You're worn out physically. And I just want to say to you this morning, the Lord's your shepherd. He will make you lie down in green pastures. He wants to lead you beside waters of rest. He can refresh you physically. He's the author of life. Do you know that he upholds the universe by the word of his power? You don't have to stay up an extra hour to keep things spinning. 
Like he's got it under control. If you can trust and put your faith in the invaluable name of Jesus, he can refresh you physically. Second thing I see is that he can refresh us emotionally. Okay? This took me to pause. I was thinking about what it means to be refreshed emotionally. It's Paul in prison writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And he's writing to Timothy and reminding him of all the bad things that had happened to him in the province of Asia. How he was mocked, he was beaten, he was stoned, and he writes this. And all who were with me turned away from me. Do you hear the dejection in that? Like I'm suffering, but nobody's with him. But then he writes this. But may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me in the Lord. All the pain that he had went through, dejected, left alone, in prison, but he's being refreshed by one saint, one person in the Lord refreshing him emotionally. Is that you all this morning? Like how many of you are emotionally worn out, hurt, wounded, dejected, feeling betrayed by other people? Y'all, I just want to tell you, God can refresh you. He can send moments, kairos moments of refreshing upon you emotionally. I heard this recently from somebody in our church that before the church plant happened, uh, kind of got away from community, just kind of felt like a boat drifting out to sea, not really knowing what's going on, got plugged in, and is now refreshed. The whole family is becoming revitalized. That's what the power of Christ can do. That's the invaluable name of Jesus. He'll refresh you emotionally. But finally, I, I want to say he can refresh you spiritually. Psalm 19, verse 7 is one of my favorite scriptures. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Some of you are just soul tired. Right? What does that look like? What does it mean to be soul tired, to be weary in your soul? It means you're unable to fight temptation. It means you're unable to resist the devil and his lies and his schemes, that you're unmotivated in service of the Christian faith. And y'all, I can only share this because I can get really transparent. I know exactly what all three of these feel like. I have experienced physical, emotional, and spiritual burnout. After three years in South Asia from 2016 to 2019, I was worn out. And that culminated in us getting kicked out of the country and having a 10-day abrupt nature, worn out, just, just, just drifting, numb, honestly. Numb was the feeling I was experiencing. But God in his grace and his mercy led me to Jeremiah 31, 25 that says this, I will refresh the weary soul. You know, and it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't instantaneous. It wasn't like this man that stood up and began to walk and leap into the, it, it, but it happened. He sent moments, just moments of refreshing. Y'all, he's faithful. His name is invaluable. He wants to refresh you. But the reality is those moments don't always come when we want them to, right? I mean, that guy had been sitting there for 40 years. How many times had he had probably wished he could go into the temple? 40 years. Yearning for that, thinking about that. But sometimes those moments don't come when we want them to. Maybe our cancer isn't taken away. Not all wrongs done to us emotionally are made right in a moment, and we yearn for those. So what do we do? If we're not experiencing these kairos moments of refreshing, what do we do? I'm glad you asked. Acts chapter 3, verse 21, he restores us. It says that he may send the Christ. This is the end of verse 20. He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The time of restoring all things. I told you I could geek out, okay? First word of the Greek word for time is kairos, moments, opportunities, seasons. This word is chronos. Does that sound familiar? Chronology, chronological. This is a fixed date, a literal point in time. God has spoken long ago that there would be a moment, a real time, a day when he restores all things. Are you with me? 
So even when we're not experiencing those moments of refreshing, even though we're yearning for them, you can have faith in the invaluable name of Jesus that ultimately he's going to restore all things one day. The Bible says that right now we see things in a mirror dimly, but one day we're going to see face to face. Revelation says that one day the dwelling place of God will be man, that he will be our God and he will be with us. And there he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes, that death will be no more. There's going to be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. You won't even need to be refreshed because you're going to live in a constant state of refreshment. We can have faith in the invaluable name of Jesus that what he began as Alpha in the beginning is what he's going to end as Omega in the end times. He's going to restore all things. So there's some real blessings. The the, the name of Jesus, y'all, it's invaluable. Whether you put your faith in it or not, it, it will never not be. That was confusing. You know what I mean. Never not be invaluable. It's always invaluable. But it's also incredibly invaluable for you to put your faith in that name. Because he's going to remove your sin. He'll refresh you. And ultimately, he's going to restore us. But let's look in verse 23 as I conclude this morning. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. For those who don't. For those who don't put their faith in the invaluable name of Jesus, y'all, their sins won't be removed. You won't be refreshed, and ultimately you won't be restored. That's not the destiny I think God wants for you. So put your faith in his invaluable name that he may bless you. So let me pray for us, and then um, we're, we're gonna, uh, the worship team's going to come back up, and then I'm going to come back and lead us through a time of communion also. So we, we got some more worship. So let me pray, and then we'll respond in song this morning. Father, we are deeply grateful um, just for the chance to open up your word and to learn more about the invaluability of your name. You are worth every, giving up everything for. We know from experience, we know from Scripture that you remove our sins. God, we can't do that on our own. That's not something we possess the power for. We, we, can't, we can't scrub that dirt away. But just as that man was healed in the name of Jesus, so our sins are cleansed in the name of Jesus. Thank you. We worship you for the gift of your grace and the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for moments of refreshing. God, we know that you do those. And Lord, I, I, my gut just tells me there are people here who, you, who could use that be refreshed physically, to be refreshed emotionally, to be refreshed spiritually, will you pour out your grace on them this morning and refresh them? And then finally, we're thankful that ultimately one day you're going to restore all things. What a blessing to walk by faith in the invaluable name of Jesus. We love you, Lord. May you be honored and praised by by this time as we turn now to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.